Well, good morning, everyone. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we looked at the background of Peter, the author of First and Second Peter, the man who had lost all hope and uh, who in his books is extolling hope as the believer's vital possession. So this week, we're going to unpack a little bit exactly what Peter was talking about when he said that we have a living hope. So let's ask God to bless our time and enable his word to sink into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we are so grateful for your word and the power that it has to change our lives. Uh, Lord, you said that our lives are washed by the reading of the word. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would wash our lives, so that you would uh, cleanse us afresh through the reading of your word. We pray, Lord, that uh, our lives would be changed, that you would give us hope, the hope that Peter had. Lord, even after losing all hope, he had that great hope in you once he experienced the resurrected Christ. So, Lord, we pray that today we would experience the resurrected Christ speaking and teaching us. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me, that I would speak your word in power and in truth. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I've noticed about God is that God loves variety. I mean, uh, when God makes a tree... He doesn't make it like all the other trees, you know, like for humans, we like to make our little box houses, you know, one after the other. Every Hyundai is is the same, you know, like every uh, pickup truck is the same as the last one, you know, we change it every three or four years. But God makes everyone individually. They're all different. Every day he paints a new sunset. uh, And so it is with all of us humans. We're all completely different. There's no two exactly the like. Even, even identical twins aren't actually identical. There's little slight differences. Oh, sometimes we want to be the same as other people. You know, we buy the same stuff. We, well, we, <clears throat> we do the same things to be popular. You know, we might, might follow the same sports teams because everyone else is doing it. Uh, but actually, we're as different as can be. There's over seven and a half billion different people on the earth. And there's more flavors than Baskin and Robbins, honestly. We don't look alike. We don't act alike. We don't dress the same. We, we don't like the same stuff. We have different values, different goals, different motivations. We have different jobs, different hobbies, different sports teams that we uh, like, um, different sports altogether that we like. You might like hockey. I like, you know, uh, tennis. Uh, you might like to read a book. Uh, I like to build stuff. You might like Celine Dion. I like Toby Mac. Uh, you may be short. I'm tall. Maybe you have brown skin. I've got this creamy colored skin. Our weights varies. Our philosophies vary. Even No matter who we are, we're all different in some ways. But there's one way that we're all the same. One common thread, at least, throughout humanity we all get hurt. We all suffer. Tears are for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a believer, a Muslim, a Jew, Confucius follower, or what. It doesn't matter where you're from, where you're going. We all get hurt. Life has a certain way of going south sometimes. We all know the pain of sickness, heartache, disaster, trials, calamity, failure, all that stuff. We, we all know it. Everybody speaks the universal language of suffering. A great preacher once said uh, to a bunch of aspiring young preachers, preach to the suffering, 
and you'll never lack a congregation. There is a broken heart in every pew. Ever since Adam and Eve uh, took the forbidden fruit, the curse of suffering has plagued all of their descendants right up till today. No one can escape it. So, in this first letter of Peter to his followers, to his fellow believers scattered throughout Asia, uh, Peter is well aware of the difficult situation that his readers are in. As Chuck Swindoll puts it, these people were being singled out by the same flames of persecution that would take the apostles' life in a few years. Their circumstances were the bleakest imaginable. Yet Peter didn't try to pump them up with positive thinking. Instead, he gently reached his hand under their chins and lifted their faces skywards so that they could see beyond the circumstances to their celestial calling. And Warren Worsby says, the important thing for us to know about these scattered strangers is that they were going through a time of suffering and persecution. At least 15 times in this letter, Peter is referring to suffering. And he used eight different Greek words to do so. And some of the Christians were suffering because they were living godly lives and doing what was right. Others were suffering the reproach for the name of Christ by unsaved people. Peter wrote to encourage them to be good witnesses to their persecutors and to remember their suffering would lead to glory. Did you catch that? To be good witnesses to their persecutors. Ever tried to do that? To be really kind to someone who's, who's uh, hurting you? I mean, that is not easy. We want to retaliate. We want to defend ourselves. We want to fight back. But Peter had been changed by the power of God. He used to be all those things. The fighter, the, the defender. But Peter had been changed by the power of God. And believed that that power was available to everybody in the church of Asia Minor as well. To go beyond pain and suffering to hope, as Peter had. Now you might be wondering, what what kind of persecution was going on for these Christians in Asia Minor? Well, as near as we can tell, this letter of Peter's was written around 62 AD. Which is right in the middle of the infamous Emperor Nero. Now... Emperor Nero was accused of setting Rome on fire. In order to kind of deflect some of that uh, pressure and some of that accusation, he started uh, uh, persecuting Christians as, as a scapegoat, really. He made it illegal to follow Christ. And he punished the believers in the most barbaric ways. I mean, he, his methods of punishment included crucifixion, being torn apart part by wild animals or, or dogs or lions, covering them in pitch and hanging them on a pole, and then lighting them on fire so that, you know, he could enjoy the light for his evening festil- festivities. It was absolutely gruesome. This is why Peter writes, Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. Yeah. All kinds of trials, I'll say. So don't be brushing away this little statement here. Oh, well, they they must have been going through some difficulties. Minor inconveniences. No. This was dehumanizing torture that, at extreme levels that they were enduring. And it was in the middle of that kind of persecution that Peter writes this message of hope. I mean, honestly, Peter had the authority to write this. I mean, he was actually himself in prison at the time, in, in most likely in Rome. Uh, and so 
you and I might not be facing, you know, terrible persecution like this. But this letter of Peter's applies to all people who have the common experience of pain, suffering, and hardship. And certainly during these days of of, uh, common viral danger of COVID-19, lurking in the streets and in the marketplaces, you never know where it is. There's a fear of this deadly disease that it's going to attack us or it's going to destroy our finances. It's certainly taking away peace of mind. And then there's the, the racial minorities that are being discriminated against by those in authority. And there's rioting in the streets. Where does the believer turn to for hope in these times? Do we put our trust in the World Health Organization and say, oh, they're going to save the day, they're going to find some, some vaccine? Or, or do we trust in the government? It's like, oh, the government's going to turn around, it's going to make you know, racial discrimination illegal, they'll know how to do, they'll know how to act justly. Or do we take Peter's timeless advice and get our eyes off of the chaos around us and turn us around and set our hearts and our minds on the living hope, the living hope that we have in Christ? Here's what Peter said. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, two weeks we unpack this verse a bit. And uh, this verse is really just an introduction to the next bunch of verses, verses 3 to 12. And really it's an introduction to the whole book. And so this morning, I'd like us to notice five things that Peter writes about this living hope, this timeless truths that are facing those who are suffering. The first part of this living hope is that it includes a permanent inheritance. Look at verse 3 and 4. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. What an awesome thing. We can rejoice through suffering because we have a permanent inheritance. A secure home in heaven. It can't be destroyed. It's in heaven. You know, no earthly army can go up there and attack it. You know, the Bible says moth and rust uh, destroy what we have down here. But in heaven, it can't be destroyed. That's where our, our inheritance is. You know, you might be getting an inheritance from your parents Uh, But maybe some of it's going to your siblings or maybe to your cousins or who knows. You don't really know. But God says, this inheritance, absolutely for you. Uh, It can't turn sour. It can't be diminished. It's there. It's solid. You know, the day my father passed away, I I got to the ticket counter at the airport here in Ottawa. And I was told that in fight, in spite of the fact that the plane wasn't leaving for 45 minutes, that I had missed the deadline. The deadline for what? I couldn't believe it. They had changed their policies since the last time I had gotten a flight, and now they wouldn't allow me to get on the plane, and I had to wait for the next plane. Man, it made me frustrated. Here I had a ticket. I was on time. At least I thought I was. Turns out I wasn't, and I was told I couldn't get aboard. Eventually, I did get to Calgary later that day, and I got out of the plane and went directly to the gate that was for my next flight to Abbotsford. And when I got, I came running up to the gate. It wasn't that far from where I'd gotten off the plane. I come running up, and as I'm running there, I watch the plane back out of the terminal. And I'm just like, yeah, man, this is not going well. 
Well, because of this airport bureaucracy and uh, flight mismanagement, I wasn't there when my dad passed away. My dad passed away during that time where I was stuck uh, because of this bureaucracy. And you know, sometimes I think we get the feeling that everything is like that. Yeah, they might say that you got a flight. They might say that that you, you're you know you got a reserved seat, but you know it's it's easy to miss it. It's not going to happen that way in heaven. God's not going to say, "Oh, sorry, you missed your appointment." Oh, sorry, you just swore before you died as you were trying to swerve around that car that killed you. <laughs> you know, sorry, you didn't repent of that one. You're not coming in here. I'm not, God's not going to say that. God's not going to say, oh, the inheritance paperwork, that was misfiled. Your, your lawyer didn't get that right. No. <laughs> Heaven is secure. And security is not held down in here in some bank. No. Look what it says. It's reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven for you. They've got it under lock and key up in heaven. <laughs> Nobody can touch that. There's a mansion in heaven. It's got your name on the door. There's an inheritance deed to the property in heaven. And it's kept under lock and key in heaven. Absolutely secure and guaranteed. Aren't you glad that God didn't give us the key or give us the papers? <laughs> I would have lost it long ago. So forgetful. Uh, no, God keeps it safe for us in heaven. And that's why my favorite benediction is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the part I love. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. You see, the keeping of our soul as blameless and, uh, and, and right before the coming of the Lord, that, that's, yeah, we have a participation in that responsibility, but primarily that's God's responsibility. And the Bible says he's going to do it. That is so reassuring to me because I, I don't have all the fruit of the Spirit. That last one on the end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, man, that is not one of my top five, I'm telling you. It is not. But the Holy Spirit is the one that's working that out in me. It's not me. He's going to do it. He's going to work that into me. If, you say, if it was up to me to keep blameless before the coming of the Lord, pff, not a chance. But God's going to do that, guaranteed. As Paul said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Amen for that. Our souls are guarded by Christ Jesus himself. Some people worry that maybe they'll fall away. But I don't. Because my inheritance is in heaven guarded by God himself. What an awesome thing. Uh, Charles Chuck Swindoll says, The more difficult life gets on this earth, the better heaven seems. I agree with that. Now there's divine protection. The next verse actually talks about how uh, through faith we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance is the most secure protection system in the world. God's power. Persecution, sickness, riots, pain, sorrow, not even death itself can interfere with the, the slightest, with God's protective power. 
James Moffat says, God stands between you and all the menaces uh, your hope, all that menaces your hope, sorry, or threatens your eternal welfare. Protection here is entirely and directly the work of God. Amen and praise God. So when you're running low on hope, I've got two words for you. Accept and trust. Accept that this world is full of trouble. And trust that God's got your future all the way into eternity. Amen to that. So uh, the third reason that we have this living hope in the midst of suffering is developing faith. Yeah, the third, this is a reason that we have hope in the middle of suffering is that it develops our faith. Look what verse 6 says. In all this you greatly rejoice. Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you see what that's saying? Part of the living hope is that we're growing in faith. God will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. So if you're going through difficult circumstances, God must think that you can handle it. That's pretty comforting. That's pretty amazing. The difficult things just means that God says, hey, I got faith in this guy. Do you remember Job? Remember he was going through all kinds of crazy stuff. But God says, hey, it's okay to let him go through these things because I know Job. He can handle this. I mean, he almost didn't. I mean, it was pretty bad. But he did handle it. It was pretty amazing. So as we go through this passage, first there's this praise to God in verse 3. And now he's talking about rejoicing greatly, or greatly rejoicing. Uh, and, and then he says, even though for a little while you may have to go through suffering of grief of all kinds of trials. You notice that, that the greatly rejoicing is connected to even though. You know, we don't rejoice because of trials. We rejoice even though there are trials. <laughs> even though you've had to suffer all kinds of grief in all kinds of trials. Uh, remember, this is the time of Nero. Suffering, grief is the understatement of the year. But in spite of that suffering, God gives joy. Notice the trials. Trials are deemed necessary, okay? They're necessary. They prove our faith. If we didn't have trials, uh, it would be like, like Job, just on easy street, you know? Ah, everything's going smoothly for him. So what's his test like? But no, or what's his faith like? But no, faith has to be tested and proven that it's real faith. Uh, the, the trials that we go through, it keeps the believer on their knees. It keeps them faithful. I remember not that many years ago that I was going through a really tough time. And I was just crying out to God. And finally, after a long time, I just had to turn it all over to God and just say, okay, I don't understand you, God, but I'm just going to give it all to you. And it wasn't long after that that things started changing. And that's kind of the way it is. God says these things are necessary to test and prove our faith. So this is one of the things. When you're going through persecution or trials or difficulties, they prove your faith. 
Now, notice that Paul calls them all kinds of trials. Or Peter, sorry. Peter calls them all, all kinds of trials. Um, and there are all kinds of trials. You think of Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were tried by fire. You think of Daniel, tried by the lion's den. These believers under Nero's thumb. For some of us, it's racial discrimination that is trying us. For others, there's the dangers of working in a, in a senior's residence. And on and on the list goes. There are trials that we go through. Trials of all kinds that are developing our faith. And so be careful. If you've ever said, Lord, help me have more faith, you're probably going to get some trials. So, uh, and then we, got, we see the result of these trials. Praise and glory. And the funny thing is, the praise and glory isn't for you for going through the trial. You might, you might say, yeah, I deserve a pat in the back through make it, for making it through that trial. No, the praise and glory goes to God. Just like, when, remember Job? When he kept his faith, didn't renounce God, God received the glory. God was honored. The devil was silenced. God said to the devil, have you seen my servant Job? At the beginning and at the end, God taunted the devil for saying that Job would crumble. Job didn't crumble. And God is honored when we stand firm, when we display his sustaining power in our life by going through trial, God is honored. So the fourth thing that helps us as we go through trials is the uh, revealing of the unseen Savior. You see, right now we can't see him. And Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. What an awesome thing. He says, you haven't seen him, but yet you're rejoicing. You know, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, I mentioned these guys a few minutes ago. And it was pretty awesome when one like the son of, son of the gods was walking around in the fireplace with them, you know. <laughs> and, and yet, that's not really the, the most important time. The most important time was when they said, well, king, whether you throw us into the fire or not, uh, we're not going to bow down to the image you made. Uh, we know that God is able to uh, protect us from your fire. That's when those guys could have used a visible, visible uh, representation of God there in front of them. But that's not when they got it. They went through the trial, the, through standing firm in their faith long before the supernatural deity figure showed up. You know, Stephen, he didn't see Jesus Christ in all his glory until he was being stoned for his faith. Uh, so you know what? Sometimes we go through trials without seeing Jesus Christ, without having that visual re reference. Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. In John 20, verse 29. What an awesome statement. But notice the end of verse, the verse before this, the one we had already talked about. When Jesus Christ is revealed, ah, my friends, he is coming. He is coming on the clouds of heaven. And the Bible says that every eye will see him, even those who crucified him. Everybody's going to see Jesus. We're all going to experience 
the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he will be revealed. And when he's revealed, we'll see him with these eyes. It'll be awesome. And that's the final part of our, our, our living hope, really. It's that salvation is coming for us. We are going to be saved. Look at what verse 9 says. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, the problem with the unknown, unseen Savior and the promise of his return is that to us, we're kind of visually oriented, right? You can't see it. It's really hard to believe. Uh, we like concrete, physical things. It seems a little pie in the sky-ish to say, well, Jesus is going to be revealed and uh, your salvation is going to come. But Peter explains this. He goes back and he said, now concerning this salvation, uh, concerning this salvation, he's just talked about that this salvation is going to come. But then he expands on this a bit. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with great care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that follow. So can you, can you imagine that in your mind? These guys are writing the predictions about Jesus Christ and they're trying to figure out now how does this work? I mean, these are the guys, that, these are the prophets, and they're not quite sure how it's going to work. But they're writing it down in the Bible, and we have the record of their, their written things, the prophecies about Christ. And it says, it was revealed to them, they were not serving themselves, but you. Talking about the Christians in Asia Minor. When they spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who preach the gospel to you. Do you see where this is going? The prophecies that the Old Testament prophets got, they weren't for the Old Testament people. Those prophecies were for us so that we could look at the prophecies and go, oh my goodness, these came true. These predictions actually came true in the life of Christ. And so that when we get predictions about the future, that Christ is coming in the clouds of heaven, we can go, well, we look back at those prophecies and those prophecies came true so we can trust these other prophecies that when Christ is coming in the future. It's an awesome thing. Let me give you some examples of these predictions of the sufferings of the Messiah. Predicted sufferings of the Messiah. These things happened in the past and they were absolutely accurate. They're, they're kind of astounding, kind of creepily uh, exact, really. Remember what Jesus said when he was suffering on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is the first line of, of Psalm 22. It's verse 1, really. And many scholars believe that he was invoking the 22nd Psalm. Now, you might say, well, that's hardly a prophecy if Jesus himself just quotes it. You're right, not much of a prophecy. But look at the rest of the, prophe uh, of the prophecy. In verse 8, it says, He trusts in the Lord. Oh, uh, he trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. That's almost an exact quote of the bystanders standing around underneath the cross. 700 years later, they say these exact words to Jesus. Then later on in, in verse 10 or so, it says, my bones are all out of joint. 
you know, they didn't have crucifixion back in, a, in a, the psalmist day when he wrote this. When King David was around, bones being out of joint, that's from crucifixion, being your, your arms and your shoulders ripped out of their sockets. and It's terrible. Perfect picture. Then in, in the verses 16 through 18, dogs surround me, a pack of villains surround me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Again, who pierces hands and feet? That's crucifixion. Not heard of in David's day when he wrote these things. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Nobody could have told those Roman soldiers who were casting lots for Jesus' clothing that they were fulfilling Scripture. They would never have believed it. And yet all of the crucifixion is depicted in Psalm 22nd. It's amazing. And if you go to Psalm 53, the crucifixion is, is, is depicted again and again. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him stricken by God, punished by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, pierced for our transgressions. And by his wounds we are healed. He was led like a a lamb to the slaughter. And his sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. For he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. You remember what Jesus said from the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He made intercession for the transgressors. It's an exact picture of what he went through. Psalm 69 talks about, they put gall in my food. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. Psalms 34 says he protects all his bones and not one of them will be broken. None of Christ's bones are broken. Um, And there are hundreds. These are just verses that describe Christ's death. But there are hundreds of verses. They say thousands, actually, that describe every aspect of Christ's birth, his life, his triumph over death. These things weren't written for the prophets or for the people back then necessarily. They were written for us. So what is the the Apostle Peter's response to suffering? It's to rejoice all through this passage that we've been reading over and over again. It talks about rejoicing, about having joy, about praising God. Not Not because of the suffering, but in spite of the suffering. Why? Because we have a permanent inheritance. We have divine protection. We have an unseen Savior that will be revealed. Salvation is coming. These are the things, these are the reasons why we need to rejoice in what God has done. There's only one way to handle suffering, and that's with rejoicing. And that is with being dead to self. It's the only way we can handle suffering. Uh, A life centered on Christ is what we're talking about. You know, some people say, hey, I want to have revival. Well, the only way to have revival is through the cross. It's through suffering. The dying part is the hard part. You know, they say that the the blood of the, the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it's absolutely true. 
Death is the death of what we, what we want. And taking up our cross for Christ. I'm reminded of a story in the Old West. There was a sheriff who uh, was getting sick. And he went to the doctor. And the doctor said, oh man, this disease is going to kill you. In six months you're going to be dead. So this gunslinging sheriff went off and started rounding up all the criminals, uh, all the the fast guns in the West, uh, because he had absolutely no fear anymore. You know, I mean, if he died, well, you know, no big deal. Uh, So, I mean, he was going to be dead in six months anyway. So with incredible courage and great daring, he rounded up all these criminals. Uh, But then one day he was in a big city, and he went to a different doctor. And this doctor said, dead in six months? No, no, not at all. You, 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 we'll give you this little treatment here, and you'll be good to, you'll live to an, age, uh, an old age. Well, this sheriff just hung up his guns. <laughs> all of a sudden, he went, oh, I'm still going to lie. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to die. I can live. And so all of a sudden, all of that bravado just drained from him. He wanted to live to old age. This kind of proves this thing. That if we are already dead, we don't fear death. Nothing can hinder us. Once you've gone to the cross, given up yourself, given up your ambitions, your goals, you're ready to do whatever Christ calls you to do. You're ready to give your life away. So that's what God is calling us to do. It's kind of like Pastor Tom from Romania, pastor of Second Baptist Church in Aredia, Romania. And until he was ex- exiled by the Romanian government in uh, 1981, he lived this amazing life. In Pastoral Renewal, he writes of his experience. He says, Years ago, I ran away from my country to study theology at Oxford. And in 1972, when I was ready to go back to Romania, I discussed my plans with my fellow students. And they pointed out that I might get arrested at the border. <laughs> One student asked, What are the chances of you successfully implementing your plan? And so Tom went to God and asked about it. And God brought to mind Matthew 10, verse 16. I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And seemed to say, tell me what chance does a sheep have surrounded by wolves? And seemed to say, tell me... uh, What chance of lasting more than five minutes, let alone converting these wolves, is there? Tom, that's how I send you, the Lord said. Totally helpless, completely defenseless, without any reasonable hope of success. And if you're willing to go in that position, then go. If you're not willing to be in that position, well, then don't go. And so Tom writes... After I returned, uh, I preached uninhibitedly. Harassment and arrests came. And one day, during an interrogation, an officer threatened to kill me, he says. And then he said, Sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. (laughs) I love this, eh? Sir, you know, my sermons are on tapes all over this country. If you kill me, you'll just be sprinkling those tapes with my blood. After that, whoever listens to them will say, I better listen to this guy. I mean, he sealed these tapes with his blood. And they will speak ten times louder than they did before. And so go on, kill me. 
I will win the supreme victory then. <laughs> the, the poor officer didn't know what to do and just sent them home. <laughs> and Tom writes, that gave me pause. For years, I was cautious because I wanted to survive. I'd accepted all the restrictions that the, the authorities had put on me because I wanted to live. Now I wanted to die, and they wouldn't oblige. Now I could do whatever I wanted to do in Romania. For years, I wanted to save my life and was losing it. Now I wanted to lose my life, and I was winning it. Amen. Awesome thoughts. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9 says, For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we are experienced in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been there? Despairing of life itself? He says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we not, might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. They're saying, hey, we got the sentence of death on us, but that's just that's fine, because we're relying on God who raises the dead. <laughs> you know, Richard Sipley, he was my pastor in, in, uh, in Regina. In his first pastorate, he, he was an awesome, incredible pastor. I love the man. And in his first pastorate, he got fired. The board brought him in and said, you know, sorry, we're going to let you go. And Richard Sipley went, went home to his wife and he said, you know, I think I got this idea that God was calling on my life to be a pastor. I, I think I got it wrong. I, I must have misunderstood. I must have misheard God because obviously I'm not cutting it. I'm not cut out for this. And he was absolutely devastated, really. He was just at the end of himself. And Richard Sipley says, that experience taught me that God was saying, good, that's exactly where I want you to be. I want you to be at the end of yourself. I want you to view yourself as absolutely incapable of this. And believe me, I've had that experience as a pastor. Becoming a pastor was really scary. But the scariest part was that I couldn't be self-dependent. I have to depend on God all the time. I like to be self-dependent. I, I like doing things myself. Just ask anybody. You know, uh, if, you can't, if you can't get other people to do it right, do it yourself, you know, kind of thing. And that's just the way I, God's designed me, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if it's, a, it's God's design or part of the fall, but that's who I am. And God says none of that in the ministry. That ain't going to cut it. And that was the hard, I'm still learning that lesson. It's so hard to learn. God has to be the one who empowers, or else nothing happens. Dr. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, he said, I look back with unutterable gratitude to the lonely and sorrowful night when mistaken in many things and imperfect in all, and not knowing but that it would be death in the most literal sense, before morning light, my heart's first full consecration was made. And with unreserved surrender, I could say, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. 
all to leave and follow thee, destitute and despised and forsaken. Thou from hence shall my all be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet now rich is my condition, God is mine, and heaven is my home. Praise the Lord. Praise God that Amy Simpson went through those deep and dark times because that's why he turned his whole being over to Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the Christian Missionary Alliance today because someone turned his life over to God. Someone threw away all his own ambition and relied on God. So if you're suffering, if you're facing trials, difficulties, whatever it is, remember, Christ calls us to die to self and trust in the glorious future that he has promised. So let's pray and ask God to help us do that very thing, to deepen our faith in the one who is to be our all in all. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't always rejoice when there's trials and suffering. We don't always uh, revel in the joy of the Lord that is there for us despite trials and suffering. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit. The third fruit of the Spirit is joy. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with joy in the midst of our trials, that we would turn to you and rejoice in what we know will come, in the great hope that we have, a, an internal inheritance kept in heaven for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these great and precious promises that, that spur us on to love and good deeds. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Lord, we cannot do this work except that we die to self. And so, Lord, we're reminded of the pastor in Romania who just was ready to die for you. Lord, help us to get to that place, a place of death to ourself. Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us so that we might live for you alone. For we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you, Lord Jesus. Take us, for this is our reasonable act of worship. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.